legend. That's not a word you get to use every day when you're talking about musicians in Atlantic Canada. But make no mistake, when it comes to Jerry Grinelli, it's a word that slips right off the tongue. And rightfully so. Since the 1960s, Grinelli has been a tour de force in the jazz community and beyond. To many, he's probably best known as the drummer on the best-selling Christmas album of all time, A Charlie Brown Christmas. After decades of putting the legacy of that iconic record behind him, Jerry Grinelli recently rekindled his relationship with the music and started bringing a show called Tales of a Charlie Brown Christmas to audiences all over the country. Before that, in the 1980s, Grinelli came to Nova Scotia from America as part of a large Buddhist migration to the province. Since then, he's been an instrumental leader in the community helping to establish the Halifax Jazz Festival and the Creative Music Workshop. All the while, Grinelli continues to play. This year, he teamed up with renowned jazz guitarist Bill Frizzell and Robin Ford for a brand new album called Dance Hall. On a chilly, rainy night in November, I visited Jerry Grinelli and sat down with him to talk about this new album, the history of a Charlie Brown Christmas, the importance of education and inspiring young musicians, and lots more. I'm so thankful and honored to have been able to spend some time with this man, a true legend. New record with Bill Frizzell, Dance Hall. Tell me a little bit about that. How did that? Uh, how do you know Bill, and how did that come together? Uh, Twenty years ago, as it turns out, I did a. I've had a history of having double guitar bands going back to 1975. The first one was called Visions, and it was kind of this idea of working with, if you could get the two right guitar players, they could become one big guitar. Right. Rather than. Um, so. Uh, in, I don't know, 20 years ago, I had read Michael Ondaatje's book called Coming Through Slaughter, and uh, I was deeply touched. I thought it was the first book I had ever seen that had captured the essence of music, of the music, and particularly Buddy Bolden, who was our kind of archetype of all jazz musicians, you know, fucked up genius. <laughs> the model for all of us, you know, guy who lived flat out, and there was no pictures of him. There's only one picture of him left in the world. Weird. He died in a uh, mental institution called Slaughter. Oh, uh, Slaughter was the town he had to go through. Anyway, I read this book, and uh, I was just like, wow, man. And uh, I had a meeting with Lee Townsend, and I had done two records with Charlie Hayden and Robin and Ralph Towner, uh, a bunch of friends, and I... I I had a meeting with Lee, and he didn't want to part any part of these other two records, you know. And I had this list, which I do, in case you somebody says to you, "What do you want to do, man?" Yeah, as an <laughs> artist, you got to come up with something. You've got a notebook of ideas waiting. Yeah, I'm like, so here's what I want to do. He goes, "No, no," and I said, "Okay, here's what I really want to do." I hear in my head Bill Frizzell and Robin Ford, hmm. and I want to do this book which is all about the blues and it's not literally the blues it's a commentary and he's like wow he said okay and I had done a record before with Bill uh, with a great artist named Randy Eckerd and uh, um, 
it's a long story. I mean, Bill grew up listening to me play. Yeah. Because I was on some hit records. Right. You know, but he, and he told me, he said, man, when I heard you play, I went, what's that sound? I know that sound. I know that sound. And he realized I played on this record called You Were On My Mind, you know. And uh, he just told me this, this last year when we did the record. And uh, so we got the band together. You know, like, turns out Robin is Bill's favorite guitar player. Mm. Bill is Robin's favorite guitar player. Oh, it was for this record company who never pays any money for records. Uh, one of the great thieves in the record industry <laughs> of all time, Uli Blobel. If you hear that name, don't go near him. Uh, and uh, he's, I said, yeah. And he came up with the money. And then Lee said, how about what horns you? And I said, I like Julian Priester. I like Kenny Garrett. And we put it together and we did this record. So it was always meant to be like chapter one. Right. So then last year or two years ago, was it two years ago? We did, uh, Julian Priester was here teaching with us and we did a, uh, uh, a, a work of his called Love Love opposite Bill and his band on the main stage at the jazz festival. So Bill being Bill, who's he's so sweet, man. You know, he goes, hey, Jerry. And that's the way he talks. He goes, hey, Jerry, are you ever going to record with that band again? <laughs> and I said, funny, man. And, you know, I was just, I was thinking that I'd really like to do a rhythm and blues record with that band. He goes, I'm in. I said, well, what about your, you know, you're so busy. He goes, no. I'm in. So I call Robin. I said, Robin, I just talked to Bill. He wants to do this. And Robin goes, I'm in. I'm yeah. cool. So there we were. And we started. And it took a year to get everybody in the right place. My son, Jay Anthony, who's been here a lot, mm -hmm. uh, and really can play that music. And Steve Bernstein wrote the th horn charts. Uh, and it was all about, and then Lee gave me a key, the key that I needed, which was, you know, because it could just be viewed as a cover record. Right. And I didn't want to do that. You know, Jerry hires two hot shot guitar players, <laughs> you know, which people do to get on their record. But And so each piece of it is very personal to me. I, like, you know, the, the Great Pretenders, the Great Pretender I played, I was on the road with the Platters, man, when that thing was a hit. Wow. I'm the great play quarter note triplets, you know, where he goes, Caledonia, Caledonia, what makes your big head so hot? Yeah, that's yeah. a quarter note triplet. I was four years old. That's how I learned <laughs> what a quarter note triplet was. I had all his words memorized, so that's on there. Yeah, Lee suggested this Bob Dylan tune, and I had met Bob Dylan way back when at the Fillmore. Yeah. And uh, I heard a couple of different versions of it, and we, we made a version. Um 
and we did four of the tunes with horns and the rest as a quartet. And it was really like about as spontaneous music as you can make. You know, I mean, we just, we rehearsed Thursday night, flew in, everybody flew in. I finished Charlie Brown yeah. in Vancouver, which worked out perfect. So uh, we sat in the studio and, and everybody hadn't really seen the music, so we played it out. And, Bill's going, why don't you play that part, man? And I'll play this part of the melody. And the next day, we went in on Friday, got our sounds, and um, did so much music. We didn't even know we had completed <laughs> all, almost all the quartet music that day. In one day? Yeah. Wow. I we mean, you, you're obviously, you probably, you're not the kind of guys who sit around and do five or six takes. No, it was like, everybody, you know, everybody's in the booth is like, serious paying attention man. yeah you know because you're paying attention to whether you screwed up anywhere where the take is wrong it doesn't feel right and uh you know like a meet me in the morning the first one uh, everybody starts like dancing around the studio <laughs> like you guys killed that shit man you know and we're like the next day the horns came in we finished all theirs that was saturday sunday we're like well what have we got left to do and everybody goes, oh, we just got the Aretha tune left to do, which was the last tune I chose for the record. Um, I heard it on a, there's a beautiful movie. It's called Bobby. Mm -hmm. and yeah, about Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, the yeah. last day. It's a great movie. And at the end of the movie, Aretha Franklin sings, I ain't going to break my faith. Mm. And I had been looking for one more tune. And I called Lee and I said, I found it because this is really about where we are right now you know it's the most important thing we can do is stand for whatever we're going to stand for yeah we don't can't we don't have to attack even back we just have to be unmovable man. like screw you we're not stopping to play this music we're not stopping to have a place like ckdu you know what i mean yeah that's what's needed so that's that's the story change in in like the music sector and things like and that. in yeah. world events yeah you know who was it daniel ellsberg from the ellsberg papers mm -hmm. said you know one of the great activists he said just don't do something stand for something you know yeah. like anybody can go out there and march but for actually standing for something that you believe in and not changing it all these years later what i'm curious what like if you still see the that stand in music, I mean, obviously you still see it as important, but have you seen that change over time and have you shifted your perspective on how you can take that stand through things like music? Uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I, you know, we run Creative Music Workshop every year, 23 years here in Halifax. 
So there's a lot of community we've developed and a lot of young players who are all playing in all the bands. On the Obey Festival, you'll find people from creative music who yeah. are not interested in stylizing people. And we talk, always talk about, um, you know, I always crack them up because I say, look, man, we don't need any more neurotic artists. <laughs> My generation had all the fun. You know, we got to be high and we need people who are like warriors in terms of the arts. And you gotta serve this music mm. and you have to learn your craft. And I sound like an old fuddy-duddy, <laughs> but you know, th there's a lot of people, young people out there now who are not hearing that. They're saying, oh, I just wanna get my little hit record or my little record, get in my van and go on the road and hope for the best, you yeah. know? Maybe get lucky. Well, there's not much in music industry left, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's important. Am I answering your question? I'm, yeah. I think it's, for me personally, it's important that I, I uh, almost risk it all on every project. You know, my manager, Colin McKenzie, great filmmaker and everything he has to constantly point out to me he says the problem is dude you won't make the same record again <laughs> <laughs> you know he said it'd be a lot easier to sell if you would just make the last record they liked yeah right yeah you know he goes i hate it when you call me and say here's what i can see <laughs> i call him with that big list and yeah you start know going down just go this is what i want to do man you know, the next thing we're starting on is we got music from from uh, Arts Nova Scotia to do a a series of recordings that I that I call the Old City New Voices, so I can record some of these young people and awesome make a real compilation of what's happening in Halifax now. Yeah, not in jazz. I'm not interested in jazz. Right, just in general. Yeah, I'm interested in good music. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's what people honest music. Has this sort of mentorship been part of your career throughout? Is it something It was that forced you... upon me by my teachers. I never, I was just too selfish. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy wanting a career. You know, I don't want to teach, man. Yeah. But I think Halifax gave me, after teaching in Berlin at the university and being a professor and building a really beautiful program there, uh, and then when I came to Halifax, meeting Susan Hunter at the beginning of the jazz festival, and we had a conversation, and I said, unless you have an, an educational component, you really don't leave much for the community after the festival's over. Mm. You know, so how do we do that? And how do we build a community of young artists who support each other and are willing to work hard? You know, because I'm not very pleasant when it comes to. <laughs> I don't bend, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I believe in taking care of every student and, and each one of them have become my friends and I've recorded with on the last record, um, what I hear now with all the horn players from here. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's important for them to spend the time and the musicians I bring, the artists I bring to teach, all have this same view of music, of what does it take to be an artist? 
And uh, if you're just in it to get rich, forget it. You know. Yeah. I mean, I've been rich. <laughs> I've been poor. You know. Some of the best music I ever made was living on food stamps and welfare. Uh, and then I've been on hit records. You know. And I've been ripped off. So that can't deter you. And I think that's a little bit missing. Right. In not just musicians, but artists in general. And I don't mean it as a criticism. I really don't. I, I, it's a concern. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's a concern, man. How are you going to move it forward? You know, how are we going to? not only survive, you know, a record like this uh, with Bill and Robin and you can't get any more famous guitar players. It went out to Sony, it went out to all these companies, which are not cold calls because Lee Townsend knows all these people. And they're like, oh man, it's great, my bosses won't touch it. Yeah. And, and then I said, I want to keep it in Canada. And so it's at on Just In Time, you know. Yeah. Jim West and been great dealing with him and I'm glad it's in Canada. in the first place because I know there's like a nice documentary about your journey here yeah maybe you could tell us a little bit about what brought you here I moved here um, quite honestly because my Buddhist teacher Choyong Trungpa uh, who, sent, who died after we got here um, said that this was a good place that Nova Scotia was a place where things could be held and protected uh, from that view we're in the middle of the dark ages right now you know and um, he said it was a good place for us to practice meditation mm. and it was a good place that we would have to work very hard to be part of the community and it would cut any arrogance we had about coming like giving something to bringing something to this community that this community of Nova Scotia is very rich, and it is, it really is, some of my dearest friends. Uh, which took a while for them to keep an eye on me, you know. Yeah. Hey, bye, you know what I mean? <laughs> I think a lot of people forget that there was a big Buddhist movement here. Yeah, you put, you put 2,000 people in a city this size, and suddenly you got espresso. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and you have the New York Times. And a lot of them were from America. And then, you know, I raised my daughter here. My uh, other three children were raised here, and they're friends. Some of them are Buddhist. Some of them aren't. Some of them are Shambhala people. 
but it's mixing. It's a great social experiment. And, and also, man, I could see the writing on the wall. I knew where the United States was going. Yeah. You know, like it was, it's going exactly where I thought it was going to go. So 80, you came in the 87, so that was Reagan times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, and now they're still talking the same thing, trickle down. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Lord. Anyway, uh, and, I, and I didn't want my daughter to be raised there. I wanted my daughter to be able to walk to school, mm-hmm. you know. Of course, once I moved here and I realized there was no work here for me, the conservatory created a job for me and that got me landed. Right. Wow. And I did that. And then I got this job in Berlin as a professor, so I commuted. But it meant I was getting paid a lot of money. So I could do all this other stuff at home for free. Right, right, yeah. You know what I mean? So Donnie Palmer was here and, and Skip Beckwith were people that should have little monuments built up to him. Yeah, so it's 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 my home. People are always going, Man, why are you living in Nova Scotia? And I'm like, other than winters, the only time I gotta leave, you know, because I'm too old now, but I'll I'll you know, I'll die here and, and from a Buddhist point of view, I hope I'll get reborn here. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and it's just so many good friends and so much good stuff and so many projects have been born here. The yeah. new record was born here backstage at the Jazz Fest. That's right, yeah. Is it a place that, I mean, from a spiritual perspective, you, you know, you're following some direction coming here. Is it still a place that you feel contains that kind of spiritual energy? Is it the same I think as when you can, arrive? I can think it contains a, I'm not sure I would say spiritual energy. I'm, I think it would convert, contains a very honest energy, which is a spiritual energy. But I would see it as it contains a very earth-oriented energy and a practical energy and a self-sustaining energy. And uh, sure, we have our problems. It's a diverse city, but it's not an integrated city, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, all kinds of things like that, which hopefully we'll fix or change. But I think there's such goodness here. I really do. You know, just I love, you know, living downtown and, Seeing all, you know, I got my homeless guys I give my money to, talk to every day, you know. I go to the bank and I got friends and I got young friends. I have old friends. Yeah. And I don't spend all my time with Buddhist friends. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's a great place to travel and come home to. Yeah. <laughs> and beautiful. Yeah. And when nobody. I mean, Nova Scotia is beautiful, man. It's like <laughs> it's drop dead beautiful. Yeah, yeah. it's the you best. I, mean? I love it here so much. Uh, some people, I, some tourists I met were going, this place is really beautiful. And I was like, no, no, no. It's really ugly, man. This is just one lucky day. You, know? yeah. you don't want to come here.
I'd like to talk to you about the Charlie Brown stuff. Sure. That's okay, yeah. So, is it like five years now that you've been kind of back at it? it I guess Somewhere so. around there. Yeah. What, well, first of all, let's jump back and maybe okay. if we could talk about the record and, sure. and the making of the record. Because one of the things when I saw the show the first time, um, the first time I saw the show, uh, when it w- I believe it was the first year that you did it, I was... I think some people forget that jazz was uh, shocking. Uh, yeah, shocking uh, and art. It wasn't on television. Exactly. You didn't hear it in car commercials. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. So I was so fascinated by some of the stories you were telling about how, you know, it was almost a make or break deal because of the soundtrack, which has become so iconic. I know. It's, so, it's the second largest selling jazz record in history. And one of the best selling Christmas records of all time. Oh, it is the it, best yeah. one. Yeah. When you went into the studio with Vince to make the record, did you know what it was for? Yeah, yeah, we knew we were doing that. But as I talk about in the show, for us, you know, it was pretty ordinary just a day's work. Right. It was fun because we'd got to hang out with Charlie Schultz, you know, and we're like, yeah, yeah that's yeah. cool. And we tried to do this one documentary before, which nobody wanted. Um, and... But it was more like we were a jazz trio, you know, and I, I think some of us a little foggy. I make stuff up, and then Colin tells me I made stuff <laughs> up. Uh, I said, but everybody else is dead, man, you know. Yeah. I yeah. can pretty much say what I want. History's in your hands now. Yeah. Uh, I think we even went to work that night to try, you know. Right. Just like a, a gig right a gig. after. Yeah. It was just another gig, big. And we got to see some of the little clips because the animation wasn't even done. You right. Know? So, and if you notice, if you listen to the record or look at the the old show, everything fades out. Mm. Nothing ends cleanly. Interesting. Because we didn't know how long things were were actually going to run. Because it's like there wasn't the technology to watch it and play to it. Right. We could see a little bit and then play to it. So we would play to it with, with the image of... And the conversations with Charlie and Vince and the melodies that he wrote in our minds and in our hearts, you know. So, and it was pretty much one take stuff, too, you know. I mean, Lee Mendelson, the producer, who's still alive, uh, said, you know, he said, Jerry, I really believe that if there had been one person different in that studio that day, we wouldn't have got it. Mm. Right place, right time. Yeah. Yeah including the engineer Don Geis, hmm. who was the most calm. It was only four-track machines, man. Yeah. So it was just like kind of natural. I, I met one of the little kids who was a grown, you know, 60-year-old person now. Or something. He said, oh, you guys were so cool. You were running around playing with us and hanging out with us. You know, and so it was like that kind of vibe. That's awesome. Was it like, I imagine, you know, most people are recording holiday records in uh, like the summertime. Was it like way before Christmas? No, No. it wasn't. No, it was like a pretty fast turnaround. It was a pretty fast turnaround because he brought down the first one. What, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, I think, was the first one he he did as a documentary about Mm -hmm. about Charlie. And CBS was like, no. (laughs) But they liked Coca-Cola was there. And they liked this one little animation thing. And I talk about this in the show. And 
they said to Lee, well, could you make a TV special about this? And Lee's like, being a producer, you know, he's like, oh yeah, yeah. So he calls Charles Schultz and says, hey man, bad news, they hate the other show. <laughs> and Charles said, well, what's the good news? He said, they wanna make a TV show. And it was like, what? And, uh, and everybody goes, yeah. And then it's like, okay, let's do it. But we don't. Then it dawned, you know, when you hang up, he goes, shit, man, we don't have a story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And we, gotta make this we don't have, we don't even know how to animate this thing. Right. It's never been done before. Did do you remember the piece that they had chosen, like the Coke people, which piece it was from? I, d I don't remember. I'll have to ask Lee. Yeah. It was just one little three second thing. Oh, know? wow. Yeah, Super literally quick. that they, some Coca-Cola person, Coca-Cola is a real hero in this story. Yeah, strange. It's, Isn't that weird? It's strange. I mean, so do you think, uh, and obviously people should go see the show so they get the full breadth of these stories because you do tell some amazing stories. But, you know, Char the, the special has a, a, a pretty, especially at the end, like a pretty heavy Christian undertone. It, do you think that's what the sponsors were responding to at the, in that moment? They were, they were, it w it's, it's, I don't even know if it's Christian as much as it is, hey, what is this really about? Well, you sure, yeah, okay. You know, like, let's go back to our roots here. It's not about going out and spending a gazillion dollars, which... Of course, TV wants you to do. Yeah, right. And I mean, so does Coke. What, like yeah. we're doing this, and tomorrow's like Black Friday. Exactly, starts, right? Man. Like, yeah, yeah. The apex you're of kidding? spending. I mean, tonight it's starting in San, uh, New York. I was just there, and they definitely didn't like the jazz music. Mm. They definitely didn't like the animation. And uh, Coca-Cola was the hero. Coca-Cola said, "We paid for it, man." <laughs> So it's on. Right. You know, which is, I, I always say this in the show, which proves nobody messes with Coca-Cola. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so know, as a, as a. So it, oh, it had like a rebel quality. To yeah, it. totally. Which is, I think, you know, 50 years later, you watch it, you would think there's nothing rebellious about this. No. No. <laughs> but it was outrageous at the time. Yeah. And when you think that 50 years from now, kids are wearing Snoopy pajamas and all that paraphernalia. Mm-hmm all that merch, that wasn't there. No. You know, that wasn't there. That was all, I was just at Fantasy where we recorded, where we mixed uh, Dance Hall. Yeah. And, you know, I walk in and the whole executive branch comes out to greet me, you know, and there's Vince's, the records on the wall. Yeah. So I was just like messing with him like, I was like, oh, wow, man, I probably paid for that chair. <laughs> hey, you guys got my chair? Do I get free food here yeah. or what? You know? Yeah.
while you're in that process, like how involved is the band in that process? Because often, you know, when you're working on a soundtrack or a score or something, you're kind of like, you do your thing and then you leave. How much investment did you have as a musician in the story of it unfolding? You know, were you aware that it almost didn't get made? No, did I didn't know things? any of that. Right. So you I, kind of just went in the studio. We went in and I was working for Vince. And one of the things I learned from Vince Guaraldi is how to be a professional jazz musician. You know, I mean, like, yeah, yeah. you didn't make mistakes, dude. If you made mistakes, you got fired. Right. You know, and I had an actually somebody was paying me, you know, when we were at home, we were making 150 bucks a week, which was real money because I'd only been making $8 a night, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> playing jazz music. And uh, we were in there to do this thing to play as good as we could play. Now, we had no idea it was even, that it was in danger, it wasn't gonna happen. Right. I'm not even sure Vince knew all that. You know, that he when he took it to LA, that they freaked. Yeah. I'm not sure he knew that. Um, I wish I could ask him. But we just went on with our business, you know. We did the records with Bowles that day, which were bigger, actually, than the Charlie Brown record was. The Charlie Brown record wasn't that big in the beginning. No, not, yeah, right. That took... It took decades of... It took sort decades of, of people and, and yeah. families buying it and rebuying it and fantasy figuring out, oh my God, this thing sells another 100,000 every year. They're doing another special edition. I just got a message from them. Oh, we want to send you another the new special edition out, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna keep doing it till I'm 80, and then it'll be like 60 years old. Right. Or something. It was a good day in our house when they announced the repress. We were finally able to buy it on vinyl after all these years. Yeah, I things. know. And you know, last year we took vinyl on the road with us. It was all gone in two oh, days. Oh man, yeah. You know, yeah and they're all... doing another vinyl version now, wow. more packaging. They'll have me some. They're gonna send me some. But we just like continued, you know. And then shortly after that, I left Vince. Mm -hmm and went into, quote, more freer music, and I didn't pay attention to it, you know? Yeah. I was busy being You were there for a job. Well, was it I was there because I'd gotten that far in my playing, I, and I quit Vince because I had learned everything I needed to learn from him, you know? Vince was very clear about what he needed for his music. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, you know that thing? that makes you want to play all that shit? And I said, yeah. He goes, that's what I want, but I don't want all that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need all that extra shit. I bring that, I need that thing that makes you lay that time right in that thing and I can ride on it forever. Right. You know, and that got to be very limiting. And, and I was starting to hear a freer form of music because of Fred Marshall and, uh, my own growth, starting to hear the drums differently and no reason to play the hi-hat on boom, chick, boom, chick. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the idea of playing in jazz clubs was becoming stupid in San Francisco when most of the young people were hanging out they hate Ashbury and mm -hmm. I felt like jazz was shooting itself in the foot because it was becoming an, kind of an elitist thing because it was excluding a whole generation. Right. You had to be 21 to go hear it. You had to be willing to sit in a smoke-filled room and drink. Yeah. 
It's still not super far off the mark not from like right, live right music. Now. Right no, now. it's yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then you go, you wonder why people are going to Sappy Fest or Obey. That's, you know, that's the spirit. Yeah, definitely. That was the spirit of jazz music. Why people went to dance halls. Yeah. You know, people dance. And you, the new record, you can dance to that record, man. Yeah. If you can't dance to that record, you can't dance. <laughs> You know, that's a good tagline for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I was turning, Colin pointed out to me after we finished one of the documentaries about it, that I was just took a real left turn after that. Right, yeah. And went in a whole different direction. Vince and I still maintained a friendship. I recorded almost every other record with him he did. Wow. project happens and you're watching it are you watching it over the decades become this sort of cultural tour no. de force not at all you're just it's just I'm, kind of I'm back like, pocketed i'm busy out trying to be famous right you know i mean as a as a quote quote free avant-garde cutting edge drummer which made my that's my reputation out mm -hmm. there uh, making music that was challenging, uh, working with lights and sound, working in a dance hall, working with the family dog, yeah. you know, hanging out, going into Europe with the Grateful Dead in 1971, you know, growing my hair. I was just out, man, you know, like everybody else. Uh, were you playing with them? Yeah. 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 Holy cow. Uh, we were like their pets. Light Sound Dimension, where we played four musicians. Yeah. And we were making our own instruments. I mean, I was making a, I was in the middle of building a uh, electronic drum set for, for Jimi Hendrix drummer because he could never hear himself. <laughs> and I had built a drum set that you could hear yourself, even with Jimi. Yeah. You know? uh, so it was just like, as my wife, who passed away last year, my first wife, Jackie, said, it, it, it was like there was this creativity in the air that you couldn't deny. And we were living in Berkeley, and Peter, great artists like Peter Volkus, the Potter, and we were all down there, man. You know, and we, everybody thought, like, we're going to change some shit. Yeah, yeah. And we really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we were talking like, Man, by the eighties, everybody's gonna play be playing this way, man. Yeah, you know, right. and like so wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, do you think that the sort of move towards a more, um, more ambitious, more avant-garde kind of style is one of the reasons you kind of maintained that distance from the Charlie Brown stuff for so long? No, I, I wasn't paying attention to it, and then people started to pay more attention to it. I, I started to get. You know, once the internet started, people created a great uproar that my name and Fred Marshall's name were not listed. Right, yeah. Yeah, it and was they originally were, just Vince they were the like, credits, right? There was one beautiful quote that's saying like, well, that's like saying Ringo Starr didn't play on the Beatles records, <laughs> man. You know? And uh, 
Well, that started to draw my attention to it. And, and I guess I matured and I had kids, you know, uh, and it, it just kept arising. And in all honesty, it would arise and I'd be like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Right. Know? And people would make me these bizarre offers to play it. Like, hey, man, why don't you do a really out version of it? And I said, what are you, crazy? That's perfect music. How, how, I couldn't do it. Physically, mm -hmm. my body wouldn't play it any other way. And uh, Colin was sneaky. I got a, Colin McKenzie was sneaky. Firstly, we did a radio CBC one. We did one on CKDU talking mm -hmm. about it. You know, he was kind of like easing me into it, but he never believed I would actually do it. And then I finally called him one night, and I said, I can see it. I'll do it. He said, come on, man. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> toy with my he's, affection. He's like waiting in the wings for <laughs> you know, this like, conversation for a like, long time. Uh, I said, but it's got to be called Tales of Charlie Brown's Christmas, and I'll create a piece about it mm -hmm. so then I could do it that I could do it. And within days, he called back and he said, uh, Audible wants to do it, Halifax wants to do it, uh, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, it's just amazing. Every, I don't think we've played one concert that hasn't been sold out. Yeah, there's huge the demand the for them, yeah. And uh, yet we still can't play in the United States with it. <laughs> Isn't that weird? For like border reasons or for like no, rights reasons? just like people... Oh, the, the demand, the appetite's not there? It's there, but you, you talk to promoters and you go, dude, I'm talking a thousand people a night, guaranteed. And they're like, really? There's still a snobbery and still some feeling that maybe we sold out. And it was not. We didn't. That's so, like within the jazz circles, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. within that, with the jazz police. I mean, how amazing would it be to see this show at like Radio City Music Hall? I know. You know, <laughs> like, like I would fly to New York just to see it. I know. I mean, you know, it should be a Carnegie Hall. It should be in, in San Francisco, celebrated as one of the great gems of San Francisco to come out of San Francisco. Yeah, and, that's uh, fascinating. Too. They've done corny versions. Sure, yeah. But, uh. So it's just really far out, you know. Um, so that once I could see it as a piece, and once I put some stipulations, like I would like the money to go to help educational things for kids. Yeah. Uh, and I found a trio with Chris and Simon. That so we could really play the music. So it's for people, it still is there. Some of them, it's their first jazz concert ever. Sure, yeah, of course. You know. Yeah, and still intensely emotional. Oh, yeah. You know, I hearing mean, those songs in person, there's just, you know, songs that you, I heard, have heard my whole life. Yeah. The first night I walked out on stage in Halifax to talk, <clears throat> you know, when I got back to the drums, my hands were shaking. I could hardly play, hmm. you know. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, there was such love or or whatever that's called there's no way to name it because it all sounds corny you know but it, that it was almost a relief because i realized it had nothing to do with me mm. i was just playing this music and you know charlie schultz gave us the wonderful little clips and the kids are there all the elements are in it 
and people were coming to share this moment with each other, you know, um, meeting grandparents and great grandparents, and you know, people would come in the afternoon, bring their kids, come back that night, and bring their dad, mm. you know, and it's the only time I really actually go out into the after the show and sign. Sure, I sign records, but I meet people. Yeah, talk to people, and everybody wants pictures, and I'm like. Uh, really? <laughs> you know, I'm freaked out. Uh, so it's a, it's that kind of thing, you know. And I think it's maybe it's more important now than when it was made. Yeah, you think just because of time? Time and you know what's that song? What the world needs <laughs> now. Sure, yeah. You know what I mean? It's something people can come together as families, and you know, people come up and say, "Hey, man." You know, this is the first thing we just, when we're putting up the Christmas tree, this is what we play. Yeah, yeah. There's something real magical about that record. I think. Yeah, it just goes, click, we're in it. We're in, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're from zero it, it, to a hundred Christmas. Yeah, right? like, yeah. So, yeah, right. Yeah, like, and it's like Christmas morning, man. This We open our presents to this, you know. Yeah. And we watch the original. We don't watch the new version. Mm. And, and it's kind of, I guess it's, it's kind of freeing as an artist to, to realize you can grow up and claim something that's 50 years old that you did. And uh, it's, it, you know, they installed it in the Library of Congress yeah. and, and everything. And the woman, they did an interview with me and she goes, well, you kind of, resisted doing this and I said no I want more credit than just resisted <laughs> you know I turned out a lot of money and I really fought back against doing this you know and it's kind of sad for me to do it because all those guys are dead and they're right, my friends yeah, yeah. they're but my dear friends of course is there uh, you know the, I must imagine also that on the flip side of that it's sort of a way for you to relive some of those memories though yeah yeah I, I mean when we look at the video and we stop there and there's me, young me at 23 or 4 years old and Vince and Fred and it's like wow you know man it was, we had a lot of fun you know yeah we were hanging out with Lenny Bruce and you know we were having a sh shitload of fun <laughs> and it was a wild west man and there is a bit of nostalgia in it now for me of, of like so much of my own family's past and so many of my f my friends, you know, have been. I told Julian Priester, the trombone player, the other day when uh, last year when Ornette died, I said, "Hey Priester, there's not that many of us left, man." Mm -hmm. And he goes, "Jerry, when you gonna understand there wasn't that many of us in the <laughs> first place?" Yeah. You know? So there is that nostalgia. Definitely. there for me that and of course every night I get to go out there and talk and I have no idea what I'm going to say man. You know, no it's it's different Col every time Colin's standing back there going oh god who knows <laughs> what he's going to say tonight <laughs>
you don't strike me as the guy, a kind of guy who sits idly by. So what's next for Jerry Grinelli? Uh, getting my health back. Um, and um, I think I'm going to do a long retreat for a month in, in, in Tucson just to be in the desert. Hmm. And I want to write some music. And I'm really organizing this um, old city New Voices project yeah. for these kids. For for these kids, like everybody's a kid to me. I'm old. Um, with these students, where I want to feature them, I really want to make a compilation record that says, "Look, y'all haven't been paying attention, and this is what we've been doing out here." Totally. So you better wake up. I'm curious as as someone who has been here for so long and been invested in the music scene so long. You know, one of the things we talk about on my radio program is a lot of emerging and up-and-coming mm-hmm. artists and stuff like that. What are some things that we could be doing better in this city, for example, to recognize people like that without having someone behind us saying, like, pushing, you know, saying, listen listen to this, listen to this. That is our role, perhaps, as yeah. curators. But what what doors need to be open here for I people think, to realize what's going on? I think that we've got the beginnings of a community um, through Creative Music Workshop. And, and the young people who've done that are always exposing me to new people. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going, hey man, this rapper, and I can't remember his name, uh, like, we should put him on his record, man, because he's killing it. You know, I mean, he's really out. Uh, you know, I did something with Alan Silly Boy mm. uh, about, um, and I think it's just trying to keep enough. Uh, uh, good venues, good venues would help. Like 1313 is a great place to play music. Yeah, played many a show there. Yeah, you yeah. know, and it's just a, it. that room has been full of music ever since we first opened the doors. And uh, people getting used to coming out and supporting it. but And they are. Yeah. That's what's weird. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's a, you know, in the new board at Jazz, Jazz East, you know, is really committed to, I would like to see a real center of excellence for the arts mm. develop out of this. My dream's big, you know, like really where you could have a really diverse center for the arts where someone like Alan Sillyboy and uh, Shantae and, and people I don't even know yeah. but I'm meeting, you know, could teach this way for young people like yourself, I mean, you have that spirit. But to talk to him about broadcasting, to talk to him about writing and how to use this social media, like you know, yeah. I don't, I don't know this. <laughs> you know, Colin doesn't do it for me, or somebody. My students go, "Give me that, man." Yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> but what you're, what I'm hearing is, uh, is mentorship is just a giant component of all of this, and yes. we also need mentors to, we to do. open their, their time doors for and hearts. Stop. We don't need artists going into school and doing little painting projects. We need artists to step up as mentors for people, which is very hard. I mean, there's a lot of times I go to lunch with my students and they show up here once a month or twice a month in the morning because they want to talk about teaching. And I'm like, oh, man, why don't you guys go away? You know? <laughs> uh, but they take care of me when I was in the hospital. They showed up, man. They yeah. were like, what do you need? You know, so I think more 
um, like people like John Little uh, need to be mentors and, and that young people see that you can build a life as an artist. And you might not be rich, man, but you ain't going to be getting rich working in a bank either anymore, yeah, dude. Yeah, I know. Too. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's not like that trickle-down thing is not going to work. Mm. So you might as well do some. And also I think that that we need more multidisciplinary approaches. Mm-hmm. Putting musicians, we have, we started this year with five, we got five dancers for the program this year because we had an ensemble called Where Dance and Music Meet. And because I won the Porsche White Award last year, mm-hmm. uh, I was able to give some money to 1313 so we could have our own website. It's going to be up there. I'm going to be able to teach online free. Oh, wow. You know, and have resources and... Uh, do blogs, do things like this, post this. Yeah, totally. You know, and it's really beautiful. The video's good. So that's going to go up. And yeah. they're like, well, how are we going to make money? I said, we don't have to. No. You know, we paid for it, dude. You know, so we can make it available. I want to give lessons online free and do blogs. And because I travel and hang out with certain, quote, famous musicians, um, Talk to them. Yeah. Have interviews. Make this all available. Oh, yeah, man. The the uh, the Rolodex you must have is. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, hey, hey, you know, it's like, hey, man, I'm in New York. Dave Douglas, you want to hang out, you know, or Robin, what's up? Oh, man, I'm hang-, you know. Totally. And just talk about music. And I think that we need to. Uh, it's almost like how diverse we are, but we have put it together to become a power mm-hmm. you know there's still lots of silos out there i think yeah yeah, yeah lots of silos that need to come together and give up their territorial battles and say let's do this you know let's make something beyond this uh we're kind of lucky because you know young people aren't running off to toronto anymore because that that don't work. No. <laughs> Ain't no work in Toronto, man. Yeah. You know. Just a bigger city, that's all. Yeah. It's yeah. just another bigger city you're going to scuffle. You know, you're going to work in a Mac store here or there. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know. Awesome. So I think it's keeping people home and and mentoring people. You know, and, and you, people like you, connecting people that you know to people like me. Mm-hmm. You know, and then me being able to provide some cover for people you know what i mean yeah like if i make this record with everybody and i don't want to play on it all but they're all like well but if you play on it man it's kind of cool you know it gives it i'm saying okay it gives it some cred sure for sure yeah you know so i think all those kinds of things yeah i have great vision for this place it sounds like you have since you got here yeah And it's been true, proven true with such great people like Susan Hunter and, and uh, lots of different people accomplishing great things, you know. Uh, now my trick is to just live long enough to see some of it, at least have a seed, you know. Yeah. I, I won't see any, see any fruition, you know. But I figure I might make it another 20 years, so I'll be 97 and real cranky. <laughs> but having done a, a, a breadth of excellent things. I told, keep telling Colin, I said, 
look, man, by the time I'm 80, which is, I'll be 77 this year, I said, three more years, the filters are all coming off. He goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I said, I'm just going to call them as I see them. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> Every manager is like a wish list, you know? Yeah, it's like, but he's great because he's so supportive, you know? Yeah. And there's so many great people here. Chip Sutherland, uh, you know, some of the people who started Sloan and yeah, Yale yeah. and all that movement. Totally. It feels like we're ready for another kind of little movement like that. I feel like we're poised. Yeah. Frankly, that, you know, like uh, there is uh, there is a real, I don't, th- I mean, I've been doing this show on CKDU for almost, I think it was like eight years this year. And part of the reason that I wanted to do it was because there was so much music that nobody was hearing. Yeah. You know? And we would travel with our bands across the country and we'd be like, man, you got to listen to this band. You got to listen to this band. And nobody was really knowing about it. So that was kind of the impetus for me to start something like this. And as I've gotten older uh, and started, you know, going out maybe a little bit less on a Wednesday night to right. the to Gus's to see the, the local yeah. bands or whatever, the show has really kept me in touch with some of the younger bands who are coming up. Yeah. And now because it's been going so long, it's got a little bit of a rep. Bands are sending me stuff. So it's so incredible that we do have all this stuff here. And I think a lot of people struggle with what to do with it all. I know. And how to, and how to kind of maximize these things and and i don't know those answers but it does seem like there needs to there needs to be some kind of push to kind of bring it up into that stratosphere where it deserves i remember once in san francisco we were fighting um the thing the stones did at the raceway oh altamont altamont we knew it was evil we knew it was no good we knew the stones were only in it for the money Mm. And anybody who's going to hire the Hell's Angels as security <laughs> is out of there. That's your first first tip, month. yeah. <laughs> you know, so we had this community meeting. Like all the dead were there, we were all there, and it's almost like it'd be great to have a wonderful community me- meeting. Like, if you're interested in the future, let's get together and figure out how to do it. Let's have some conversations and mm-hmm. keep having conversations. And without territorial design, you know? Yeah. And uh, I'd like to see that happen. Yeah. Do you think there's a role for government to play in some of this? You know, by way of funding, by way yeah, of Yeah, if we space. can get the money. Yeah. Space. We should have our own space. We yeah. should have a really creative space here, you know? We should have one of these buildings. Totally, yeah, yeah. Where... It could be performance spaces, teaching spaces, and, you know, dance space. They were talking about doing that with the old convention center. Yeah, th- th- I think that's still on the books on yeah. s- some level. But but uh, we should have that space. And we should have... The, the, the problem I see with those is, is things get mediocre mm. rather than saying, these are our standards. And it might be uncomfortable... But these are the standards here. We have to keep maintaining because, uh, you know, my my standard when I was a kid was, I want to go to New York and play, man. You know? Uh, and you're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy, <laughs> when Elvin Jones is playing or Miles Davis is playing across the street from you in New York, you know? You're, like, there. Yeah. And... Part of it is we've raised that standard, and um, we got to keep raising it. 
to, to beyond just Nova Scotia. So that is a worldwide standard. You know? Right. Yeah. You know? Thank you so much for your time. Oh I, my, it's a pleasure to I, talk to you. I God, mean, this I is like no, no, no. Uh, this is, I mean, like I love having these conversations, and um, you know, your, you know, certainly your history is uh, unlike lots of other people here in Halifax. So it's it's nice that you're here, and uh, we're all very appreciative that you're doing all this work in our community, but also that you've given us so much work to lean on when when we need it. So thank you for I'm your time. Grateful. Grateful to be here, really. Thanks Thank a lot. Do it again sometime. Yeah, of course. There you have it. My conversation with jazz legend Jerry Grinelli. Buy his new album, Dance Hall, and learn more at jerrygrinelli.com. If you enjoyed listening to this interview today, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Halifax is Burning and it'll pop up. While you're there, please make sure to rate and review the podcast. You can also find a handy link at halifaxisburning.com. On that site, you can also grab past episodes of Halifax is Burning, a weekly radio show dedicated to the best Atlantic Canadian music that airs every Tuesday night on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax, Nova Scotia. You can also find Halifax is Burning on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mm-hmm.